Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. It has no errors in the original language in which it was given, Greek. And we have the promise that it remains to us the authoritative word of God in faithful translations of the original. So listen to God as he speaks to you. Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... There will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given to it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side and had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began to discuss among themselves, saying, It is because we took no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand? And how many baskets you took up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand? And how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Amen. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we rejoice, O oh Lord, that we have this good word in front of us, this faithful word, this true word, this inerrant word, this infallible word. We thank you that it is yours. Yes, you used the Apostle Matthew to pen this. And his mind and his personality is found in this 
in this book, and yet, Lord, uh, it is ultimately you, Lord Jesus, who are the Word incarnate and enthroned, who is the author of this, this passage. And we thank you that uh, we can trust uh, what we read here. Would you please help me, O oh Lord, uh, to unpack this properly, uh, faithfully? And would you please, Lord Jesus, be our prophet uh, who speaks to us afresh this morning? We ask it in your name. Amen. Kids, you know what a warning is, right? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's a, a word you probably learn fairly early in your life because uh, oftentimes you probably receive or uh, you probably received a number of warnings over the course of your short life. A warning is when someone tells you something uh, about some bad thing that might happen to you if you don't do something or if you or if you do do something it's a warning uh rather it's it's saying this bad thing is going to happen to you if this happens or if this doesn't happen and the idea is that you're supposed to listen to that warning and do what you need to do so that the warning doesn't uh become a reality so the bad thing doesn't happen to you right so that's what a warning is and again you probably received warnings uh from your parents uh, perhaps from other people as well. Uh, typical warnings that children hear are, don't play with sharp objects. You shouldn't play with a sharp knife, a steak knife. Or don't play with matches because you can cause a fire. Or don't play in the road or whatever. You've probably heard stuff like that uh, uh, recently or perhaps not recently, but you've heard stuff like that. Those are all warnings so that you don't uh, get in trouble or get hurt. Well, God gives us warnings in the Bible so that bad things won't happen to us. And that includes the adults as well as you children. We receive warnings from God and therefore are good. Well, this passage that's before us, Jesus is warning us. And Jesus is God, of course, God the Son, and he is warning not just his disciples on this occasion, but he's also warning all of his disciples down through the ages, all Christians down through the ages, to beware. That is a fancy word for be warned. And so we need to listen to these warnings, two in particular, from this passage that we're looking at. We're going to look at the first warning this morning, and as I've already indicated, it was too much material for me to uh, also put the second warning in. So the second warning is going to come tonight. I'm going to unpack that, but I'm going to tell you what that second warning is so you have a heads up uh, for this evening's uh, sermon. Here are the, uh, before I get into the, uh, well, no, I will tell you the warnings right now. Two things that Jesus warns us of. The first is this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus warns you and me against the unbiblical teachings of the Pharisees and scribes. And we'll look at that this morning. But secondly, in this passage, Jesus warns you and me against the spiritual dullness 
of the disciples. He warns us against the unbiblical teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he warns us against the spiritual dullness of the disciples. The first point regarding the spiritual, uh, the uh, unbiblical teaching of the Pharisees and scribes, that comes from verses 1 through 4 and verse 6. And then the uh, material that I'll cover tonight comes from verse 5 and verses 7 through 12 that speak about the spiritual dullness of the disciples. But today it's verses 1, this morning verses 1 through 4 and verse 6 where we're warned about uh, the unbiblical teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Excuse me, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So a little background here about the circumstances that led up to this warning by our Lord. Uh, after the feeding of the 4,000, <clears throat> excuse me, which was 4,000 men plus women and children, <clears throat> presumably their family members, after the feeding of the 4,000 in the region of the Decapolis, which was east and south of the Sea of Galilee, <clears throat> Jesus leaves in a boat with his disciples, uh, leaves the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee and crosses over to the western shore once again, which is the more, much more Jewish side, although it wasn't all Jewish, but it was, there was a higher percentage of Jews on the western shore and it was also a much more populated region as well. And so they returned to the western shore in this boat. Uh, Matthew tells us they returned or came to a place called Magadon, uh, he tells us in verse 15, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 15, verse 39, that Mark refers to the region as Dalmanutha. Over in Mark chapter 8, verse 10, in his account of what happened on this occasion. The two names, which is, happens regularly in scripture, may well be two different names for the same location. We can't prove that, but there's a good chance that uh, it's the same place, just by a different name. Doesn't make any difference. We know they're on the western shore. That's the point. And upon his arrival, their arrival, I should say, Jesus is met by a group of religious leaders. This may well have been an official delegation, although we can't prove that either, but it may well have been an official, uh, another uh, delegation from the Sanhedrin sent by them uh, who were headquartered in Jerusalem to meet Jesus and to confront Jesus. Now, this delegation was composed both of Pharisees and of a group known as the Sadducees. These were rival factions in Israel's religious leadership. And these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, were normally highly antagonistic toward one another. But their mutual hatred of Jesus allowed them to temporarily work together on this and other occasions to rid themselves of this greater common enemy of theirs who was our Lord. Mark tells us that the Pharisees uh, begin to argue with Jesus. Apparently they started the fight. Uh, Mark 8.11 makes that point. And we're not told what the nature of the argument was that they had with him, but we can guess. In all likelihood, it had to do with, as is often so often the case, Jesus claims, um, his claim rather, to be the promised Messiah, the promised anointed one of God, who the Old Testament prophets had spoken of, whose presence among them signified the arrival of the kingdom of God. 
on earth. Because the king had arrived in his person. And that is almost certainly what this uh, fight, verbal fight, was about. But during the course of this confrontation, Jesus' religious enemies once again demand that he substantiate, substantiate his claim or claims with a sign from heaven. We read this in verse 1. And this had not... Uh, uh, they had made such a claim, or such a demand, rather, for a sign on at least one other occasion. Back in chapter 12, we read of this in verse 7, uh, 38, uh, where it says there, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees, um, and they Sadducees might not have been present on this occasion, but then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Notice they didn't say a sign from heaven on that occasion. Here on this occasion, in verse chapter 16, the scribes and Pharisees come and they want him to show them a sign from heaven. Now you may be thinking to yourself, rightly, these bozos have probably seen umpteen of Jesus' miracles by this point in his public ministry. Why are they asking for another sign? Well, the answer is, these signs... Um, hadn't been splashy enough to convince them, if I can put it that way, that Jesus was who he said he was. Actually, they were splashy enough, if I can again use that uh, kind of irreligious term. They just refused to accept uh, what those signs were pointing to. But they, at least, uh, it's clear from things they've said elsewhere up to this point, that they're thinking to themselves, wait a minute, this Jesus guy could well be, it could well, could well be the devil giving Jesus the power to heal all these people. This may, we, the jury's still out, is what these um, hypocritical religious leaders uh, were saying to themselves or words to that effect. So, they now demand a special kind of sign, not just any old sign. No, all those healings, all those hundreds of healings. They're not going to, they, they don't, they're not going to do. We want a sign from heaven, from you, Jesus. In other words, they wanted a sign that would prove to their satisfaction once and for all whether or not God was with him. And of course, whether or not he was God's anointed, the Messiah. They want a sign from heaven. We want a bigger sign, is what they were saying. We want Manna from heaven, like man, uh, like Moses gave us, our forefathers. Or uh, perhaps they were thinking maybe not of the manna that Moses uh, provided, well, God provided through Moses, but perhaps they were thinking of um, uh, Joshua uh, and his prayer, that what that had brought about. Let's see the sun stop in the sky once again like it happened in Joshua's day. Or perhaps they were thinking of Elijah and uh, his prayer and what it brought about. Fire came down from heaven in response to Elijah's prayer. Again, a heavenly kind of uh, miracle. We want to see something like that is probably what they had in mind. Perhaps all of those types of miracles. Of course... They were hoping 
that by asking for such a big sign, they were hoping that Jesus would try to produce that sign for them and then fail. And thereby he would be discredited in his claim to be God's Messiah and to have God's power uh, in him and working through him. And of course, our Lord refuses to give them what they want. And the reason for that is uh, obvious, so as not to condone their evil motives for asking for that sign, and even more to the point, their deliberate refusal to believe what they knew in their heart of hearts to be true, that he was who he said he was. And he is not going to um, condone that or give credence to that unbelief and those evil motives. Instead, what he does in verse 4 is he promises one thing. You're not going to get what you want. But Jesus says, I will, implied in the future, give you the kind of sign you don't want. And that is the sign of Jonah. Several uh, weeks ago, perhaps it was months ago now, uh, we talked about that. Uh, had In a previous occasion, uh, that was back there in chapter 12 that I referenced earlier, um, the sign of Jonah was uh, mentioned. And I described that, and I won't spend all the time that I did on that in that sermon on that, but I do want to remind you why that was so significant. The sign of Jonah, Jesus is referring to his own resurrection from the dead on the third day after the crucifixion. Remember, Jonah was in the, in, it was dead, as it were, at the bottom of the ocean in the belly of the whale for three days before he was uh, spewn forth onto the shore and given a second chance to do what God told him to do to begin with. And Jesus' resurrection from the dead... Uh, his death that would bring about his resurrection would perhaps be orchestrated by some of the very men who are now demanding a sign in front of him on this particular occasion. And that sign of resurrection from the dead, which they would receive from him, them and their cohorts in Jerusalem, was a sign that would absolutely confirm to them and to everyone else that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah and Savior of the world promised by the Old Testament prophets, who was also God himself in human flesh. It would prove that. It was a sign in which Jesus would not only utterly undo the temporary victory that they would achieve over him by getting the Romans to execute him, as they eventually did, but it was a sign which, in which Jesus would utterly and absolutely triumph over them. Now this morning in Sunday school we talked about his triumph over the spiritual rulers and authorities. But here, this sign of his resurrection would be a proclamation of triumph over these men. Because his resurrection by the Father would provide ironclad proof that he was David's greater son. 
And thus he, as the, the heir of David's throne, he was the true king of Israel. He was the true leader of Israel, not these charlatans in front of him. That's the only sign you guys are going to get. And they had no idea what he was talking about, of course, at that point. Although it perhaps dawned on them when the empty tomb was discovered. Anyway, Jesus provides, that's the context in which Jesus provides his warning, which we read of in verse um, 6, after his departure from those men. But, Six and following. But notice this. It is after his departure from the men that the warning comes from Jesus' lips. He warns his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we learn, I'll read it verses 11 and 12 again to you, what that leaven was. How is it that you, you disciples, you men of mine who have been with me for so long... How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? But beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Jesus says to them. And then finally the light dawns, slow though they are, it finally dawns on them. We read in verse 12, then they understood that he did not say to them, beware the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. And the Sadducees. So notice again, he's he's warning his disciples. I think that's significant, folks. He's warning his own men, his inner circle, all of whom were professing followers of Christ and believers in Christ. Judas, of course, was not. But my point is, this warning goes to the professing church by implication. It goes to you and me. Not to buy into the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So this is, this is instruction that we need to hear is my point. So, and we just read in verse 12, the, the leaven was the teaching, interestingly, of these two religious groups that were vying for power in the religious establishment in Israel. The teaching of the Pharisees was problematic. And so too was the teaching of the Sadducees. Let's talk about that for a few minutes. What was the problem with the teaching of the Pharisees? Well, this isn't as obvious, obvious as you might think. Because the Pharisees were actually the more spiritual, much more spiritual faction amongst the uh, religious leadership in Israel. They were, arguably, uh, I mean they were, they professed to be, and they were in some sense zealous for God's law, unlike the Sadducees. They were zealous for God's law, and they tried, or at least they Uh, appeared to try to strictly adhere to God's will as contained in the Old Testament scriptures. 
And they did believe many right things, the Pharisees did. They believed that God was the ultimate author of the Old Testament scriptures. It was God who spoke through the prophets and the patriarchs. They believed that miracles were a real phenomenon. And when we read about them in the Old Testament scriptures, the party of the Red Sea, Jonah being swallowed by the fish and so on, those things happened. They believed that. They believed that God had promised to send a Messiah who would deliver his people from more than just their earthly enemies. They believed that. They believed that everyone would be bodily raised from the dead. Something the Sadducees did not believe. And they believed that there would be a final judgment at the end of history of all who have ever lived on earth. All of which are commendable things and were true and are true. But here's what was problematic about the Pharisees' teaching. They were preoccupied with the minutiae, and they were perverted minutiae at that, of law-keeping. The minutiae of law-keeping. Their version of law-keeping, I should say. They were preoccupied with law, with jots and tittles, and with... uh, their understanding of how to fulfill those jots and tittles, or obey those jots and tittles, I should say. So this is one of their problems. They're all caught up in do's and don'ts. Now, there are do's and don'ts in the Bible, and anybody who says that we're not supposed to be people who take seriously the do's and don'ts doesn't know their Bible and probably isn't a Christian. Do's and don'ts are part of the Christian uh, life, and Part of obeying and honoring, I should say, God as Christians, and we're required to do that. But these guys were preoccupied in a way that that was that prevented them from seeing other things that were even more important, namely issues of the heart. Also, the the Pharisees had effectively elevated, as I already uh, implied already, they had effectively elevated their tradition-bound understandings and, and particularly applications of God's law. They had effectively elevated these traditions above God's word itself. This is evident from what we read in chapter 15. You recall the the last chapter we were in, the first nine verses. I'm going to actually take a moment to read that so you'll you'll see the point. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1 and following. Then some Pharisees, so here it's, again, the emphasis on the Pharisees. um, Some Pharisees and scribes, and those have been scribes of the Pharisees who were with them, came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying, "Why Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Notice that. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your traditions? For God said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. 
And thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, meaning doctrines of God, the precepts of men. This is what the Pharisees were. This was their, arguably their greatest sin. They made their applications and understandings of God's law more important than God's law. It trumped God's law. And the fact that it, that, that is the case is also evident, by the way, from their collective, not, not every one of, not every Pharisee, of course, but as a whole, their collective rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Even though Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament messianic prophecies left and right. And yet they say, mm, 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 devil, the devil, Beelzebul. Pharisees' evil, or their views, which were evil, can be summarized by the words religious legalism. Their teachings, religious legalism. So, Jesus, by condemning the Pharisees' teaching, is warning you and me against their teaching and against adopting their teaching. Specifically, he's warning you and me against, uh, uh, one would assume anyway, being preoccupied with outward conformity to legal um, uh, commands, uh, outward conformity that is not accompanied by a heart of love for the lawgiver and Savior, God himself. If we get hung up, folks, in do's and don'ts, and we're all about do's and don'ts, and we're not about loving God, not about trusting God, and not about serving and worshiping God, we have become full-blown Pharisees. Is there any Pharisee in your heart today? Jesus is also condemning their elevation of church tradition above scripture as their authority. He's condemning any elevation today of church tradition. And by this I mean um, uh, teachings of a church, think Westminster Confession of Faith, above God's law and God's uh, word itself. We have great admiration for the Westminster Divines and what they wrote. It's a wonderful document, but it's not the scriptures. And we must never pretend and act like somehow they are. They're very important, but they're not God-breathed, unlike scripture. And we must never make that mistake. Another thing he's condemning by condemning the Pharisees' teaching is insisting that humanly devised applications of God's command be kept as if they were God's commands themselves. Themselves. You know what I mean? So for example, just an example. If somebody says... To properly keep the Sabbath, you may not turn the stove on. 
on Sunday and says, if anybody turns the stove on on Sunday, you are in sin. That's that's off limits. Now, yes, there are some things that are pretty clear about what's right about and wrong about Sabbath keeping. That's not one of them. And we must never pretend. And even if you hold to that view, some do, okay, you're entitled to that view and, and uh, as long as it's held in good conscience, but don't force that on the rest of us. Okay, what about the Sadducees' teaching? What's, what's problematic about their teaching? This is pretty easy. Because these guys were far less spiritually minded uh, and scripturally minded than the Pharisees were. First of all, they only recognized the writings of Moses. They didn't recognize the prophets or the or the what are called the writings. Uh, that would be uh, the Psalms and uh, Proverbs and other some other things as well. They they didn't recognize any of that after the first five books as divinely uh, as authoritative to them. It was only the writings of Moses, the first five books. And even then, and even there, I should say, they picked and chose what they wanted to believe from Moses' writings. They didn't believe in miracles or in the bodily resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the Messiah described in the Old Testament and promised in the Old Testament. Now, they did have a Messiah figure that they were looking for, but they were looking for a a Messiah who was going to be an effective political leader and military leader and nothing more. And this is one of the reasons why they rejected Jesus' claims, or at least they had an excuse for rejecting Jesus' claims. The Sadducees did, because he didn't fit the... He wasn't going to be, uh, you know... uh, a general who would kick the hated Romans out. The Sadducees' uh, views can be uh, best summarized. Uh, they, they were essentially the religious liberals or modernists of their day. And so it's roughly equivalent to the religious liberalism of our day that, that poses as Christianity but is not that many of the mainline denominations have sunk into. So, Jesus condemns this. Liberalism and modernism can deserve condemnation, just like human-made legalism does. So Jesus, by condemning the Sadducees' teaching, is warning you and me against a couple of things, at the very least, cherry-picking the scriptures to determine what we're going to believe and what we're not. Do you do that? Are there portions of scripture that you come across and go, no, I don't believe that. You're a Sadducee. And Jesus condemns that. And you, if you don't repent of it. He's also condemning, by condemning the Sadducees' uh, teachings... He's, he's condemning their refusal, and this is related to what I just said, but their refusal to believe scriptural accounts of miraculous uh, activity on the part of God, which includes resurrections, walking on water, parting water, all that kind of stuff. 
You do that, you go, oh, I no. No no man can survive in the belly of a fish for three days. That's just not it's just not possible. You're a Sadducee. And you're in sin, by the way. And maybe not a Christian. Jesus is warning us against this. But I think Jesus there's one other thing that was that was shared by both groups, both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and perhaps this is the greatest evil of all. Their teachings left no room for concluding that Jesus was the promised Messiah of God and no room for trusting in him as such. Their teachings left no room for that. They had, they had doctrinally boxed themselves in and excluded that possibility. And Jesus is particularly warning you and me of theology that does that. I hope there's nobody here that has such theology, but if you do, if your theology prevents you from trusting in the Jesus of the Bible alone to save you from God's judgment that you and all of us deserve, you're in big trouble. And you need to repent and flee to Jesus the Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God and 100% man, and is the only hope of sinners, of escaping God's judgment when we leave this world. Well, what's the reason why both these groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, what is the reason that they held to their unscriptural teachings and refused to trust in Jesus as the as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. The reason why both groups did these things was on account of the fact that they had evil hearts. These men had evil hearts. Their hearts made them, their evil hearts made them, forced them, I would say made them unwilling to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. In other words, they were willfully blind. You say, where do you get that? I get it from verses 2 and 3. The fact that they were willfully blind is highlighted by their ability that Jesus brings up here, and I'll read it in just a second, it's highlighted by their ability to draw proper conclusions in matters of a non-religious nature. Verse 2, but he answered and said to them, after they requested or required a sign from heaven, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. He's like, you rightly draw conclusions about the signs. And Jesus is assuming, in other words, he's saying, you scribes, you Sadducees and Pharisees, rather, if you are able to draw proper conclusions about the weather from visual clues in the sky, and you are, then you have sufficient powers of reasoning to draw the proper conclusion about my identity. I'm putting words in Jesus' mouth now, which isn't a wise thing to do, but you get the point. That's, that's in effect, what he is saying. 
You have all that you need to draw the proper conclusion because of all the ways in which I, Jesus had fulfilled messianic prophecy up to that point. Through all his miracles, through his teaching, through um, uh, the facts about his, his birth and where he was born and the family from which he came and so on and so forth. All those things. And yet they were not drawing the proper conclusion, the right conclusion. They were not acknowledging Jesus as Yahweh's anointed, and they were not putting their trust in him for their deliverance, for their spiritual deliverance. And yet, they absolutely should have, Jesus says. Look at verse, the latter part of verse 3. I didn't read it intentionally, but it will now. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? And the answer is yes. You do. And the fact that they were not drawing the proper conclusion about Jesus' true identity was not due to their lack of mental acumen. Their thinker was not broken, is what I'm trying to tell you. As Jesus' observation here in verses 2 and 3 about their ability to forecast weather made clear. You think just fine. Your, your ability to draw true conclusions and right conclusions in other spheres of life is just fine. It's just when it comes to me that you don't get it. You refuse to get it, Jesus was saying. Because, and the reason was because their hearts were broken. They were spiritually evil and wicked. And because of their wicked hearts, the Pharisees and the Sadducees did not want to trust in Jesus as their spiritual deliverer and king, and therefore they didn't and wouldn't. Unless Jesus gave a few of them new hearts, which he may have before they died. We don't know. Anyway, this refusal on their part to bow the knee to Christ as their Messiah was a deliberate refusal of their hearts to see what their minds clearly saw. Namely, that Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament who had come to deliver his people, his covenant people, from the power and penalty of their sins. And they knew that in their heads. But their their hearts said, Ain't going to happen. It was willful blindness. And folks, it still is today. For all sorts of people who aren't trusting Christ. It's willful blindness. Unbelievers choose to remain in their unbelief because their hearts have not been transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. They are spiritually dead. And they cannot respond to the gospel positively unless God does a work of grace in their hearts and gives them a heart that wants Jesus. Perhaps you're here today. Perhaps you're a pretender. Or perhaps you, perhaps you didn't realize you were a pretender, pretender until just now. Something I said caused you to see that. If you walk away from here and do not trust Jesus 
and flee to him in your heart and say, I am a sinner, Lord, and I deserve hell, and you're my only hope. If you don't do that and trust in him alone, it's not because you don't see and understand with your head, if I can put it that way, that Jesus is your only hope. It's because your heart is bad. And only God can change that. It's frankly out of your power to change your own heart. But God can and regularly does change people's hearts and makes them see not only with their minds but with their hearts that they need Jesus. And if you don't want him right now, my advice to you would be keep coming to church. Keep exposing yourself to the preaching of the word and start reading your Bible. Or keep reading your Bible if for some reason you have been reading your Bible and still been unbelieving. And put yourself in the way of God, if you will. And he may, no promises, but he may well give you a heart, a new heart, that causes you to see, I need Jesus. And you'll Embrace him by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of grace, that you rejoice to forgive and be reconciled to and love rebels like ourselves. We thank you that your offer of forgiveness and eternal life is open to all who will come in faith as an act of their will. And trust in Jesus alone for that reconciliation and forgiveness and life. Lord, that can't be done. Your word makes it quite clear unless you do a preceding work in such a one's heart. If there's anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you savingly, man, woman, or child, would you please grant eyes to see and a heart to believe in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.